This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. It's Monday. Alexa's gone off. It's the 21st of February. I'm Tabitha McIntosh in the breakfast slot, and today we're talking about the history of women teachers in England. From needlework and childcare to burning hayricks and general strikes, from marriage bars to gender pay gaps, this is the history of female teachers in England. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello again. Apologies for Alexa telling us the weather in Chesham, England there. Rather disjointed beginning, which is only to be expected because I've been ill or absent um, with COVID and various other things for several weeks. Maybe I've forgotten how to do this or talk to myself a lot. I haven't really forgotten. Um, School workforce report for 2020 in England. There are 508,087 full-time equivalent teachers as of the end of 2020. Of those, 384,988 are female and 123,031 are male. Again, that's full-time equivalent, so not quite how the number of people employed stacks up, but pretty straightforward one to three ratio, right? A third of teachers in England are male, um, two thirds are female, and that's shifts obviously across key stages but those are the numbers that as we'll see is both consistent with the history of education in this country but also um quite divergent from it we've ended up in a place where the professional teaching workforce is largely female we'll get to the issues with the gender pay gap or leadership gap towards the end of our hour or so today but Let's go back to the beginning of education in this country, um, which is obviously really only for a tiny elite social class for an extremely long time. So where there is any education at all whatsoever is just for the sons of the extreme elite with a little bit of light education for the daughters of the extreme elite. That starts changing in the early modern period where we start having all kinds of schools opening up. um, And there we start seeing in a classic way in this country, a divergence between education being provided for people by different classes, for girls as well as for boys. And teachers for girls, overwhelmingly, whether they are teachers for the poorest girls or teachers for the richest girls, are female teachers. So we have a stream of female employment beginning then. So I will start with the early modern expansion of education for your more socially elite sort of girls. We see a number of fashionable finishing schools starting run exclusively by women, including um, a ladies hall at Deptford in 1617. What are female teachers teaching in 1617? Are they taking up pastor's perch? Are they making sure we do retrieval activities? Well, no, mostly they're teaching needlework and they're doing masks at court. So very much designed for genteel rising mercantile bourgeoisie young ladies to learn some marriageable skills. Uh, Mrs. Friends School in Stepney in 1628 charges £21 per year 
for writing needlework and music. We have several boarding schools in Hackney opening up in the 1630s and several in Putney, which are John Evelyn of diary fame visits in uh, 1649. So um, Peeps, I think, visits one of them where he eventually hires um, one of his uh, notorious, well, notorious in that he is one of the many women that Peeps is involved with over the course of his rather scurrilous, doesn't stand up to me too, as my students say when we do it in sixth form, uh, relationship with various people. So these schools aren't educating the children of the truly elite. These schools, like I said, educating the rising bourgeoisie and female teachers are stepping in in a private capacity to meet those needs. What do your genteel higher class of servant woman want? Uh, what do their employers want them to be able to do? They want needlework, fair, they want some reading and writing. So we've got this emergence of mass literacy beginning then in the early modern period for the mercantile classes and for the servants of the mercantile classes. Um, some lovely stuff here from Gender, Sex and Subordination in England, 1500 to 1800 by Anthony Fletcher. One of the first girls boarding schools, um, the only one documented in fact before 1600, was run by a gentlewoman of Windsor who charged 16 pounds a year for diet, lodging, washing, teaching them to work, reading, writing and dancing. But for music, an applicant for her daughters was informed, you must pay for besides as you will have them learn. The school, you could, if you wanted to be a bit more fancy, get instruction in viola, singing, virginals and the lute, which was a pretty typical finishing school regime. So we are churning out higher class of servant, but also a middling class of wife. And that overwhelmingly carries on being the fairly typical finishing school product. Um, so 1617, the highly reputed ladies hall at Deptford opens. And between then and the 1640s, schools of that kind open up around the London suburbs and are also recorded in provincial towns like Exeter and Manchester. Um, the, the gentry are fascinated by this. Queen Anne visits Deptford in 1617 and is given examples of needlework by the pupils there. They are dressed for the occasion, we are told, in loose green garments covered in silver and carnation lace. Um, Several, the, the flourishing school run by Robert Perrick and his wife in Hackney was educating more than 100 girls at a time in the 1640s and 50s. And then after the restoration, they became very fashionable finishing schools, where, as I said, peeps went to visit. 21st of April, 1667. That which we went chiefly to see was the young ladies of the schools, whereof there is a great store, very pretty. So you can sort of go and look at, at women teachers educating girls to do needlework in a nice way as um, a pleasant day out. Yeah. If you weren't taking a break from visiting an asylum or an execution or any of the other fun options available to you in the 17th century. So from the first time we have education beginning to be available for people who can pay for it, the people who are providing it, overwhelmingly women entering the workforce, married women as at the school in Hackney, but also single women. This is a great opportunity to set up a business of your own. Set up a school, teach the ladies a bit of sewing and tatting, uh, do some work with, with gold, a little bit of French, maybe some music, and you are creating an emergent, working, lower middle class. Fantastic. Um, however, what's happening to the professionalization of education and women's education and educating female teachers is also going on. Uh, most of the grammar schools 
which are available for boys, teach any classical subjects. Um, and then we have an increasing demand for instruction in other subjects leading to the establishment of private schools specializing in maths, writing and modern languages. And some of these schools cater for girls. So the first noted private girls school for all kinds of subjects, not just educating posh servants, but actually churning out intelligent, educated women, um, was Mrs. Perrick at Hackney in 1643, but one of my favourite people from the 17th century, Mrs. Bathsua Macon at Tottenham High Cross. Um, Bathsua Macon, I studied her in a former life when I used to study history of educational writing. She was one of my um, interesting pioneers calling for, in the 17th century, education for girls and therefore pioneering her own role as a teacher, along with uh, Mary Astle and Margaret Cavendish some other people like that. Um, 1673, she establishes a school for gentlewomen uh, and they teach music, song and dance. Sure, because you have to do, you have to teach the performance of femininity as it's required. But they also teach writing in English, keeping accounts, and here's the crucial part, Latin and French. And if students wish, they can also learn Greek, Hebrew, Italian and Spanish. Um, Basua Reginald Macon kicked ass. She was amazing. Um, she had been tutored to Charles I's children. She was known as the most learned woman in England. And um, she wrote a book calling for the reintroduction of education for gentlewomen. So, big divergence established here. <laughs> Teach like a cavalier, says Mike Hill. Yeah, I'm saying Basua Macon kicked ass, but you know, she did not only work for Charles I, boo hiss, but then also um, when uh, when he managed to destroy his own life, um, terrible man. In Cheshire, oh, it's good Lord, one second. Alexa, skies. stop. I do apologise. Alexa apparently is a cavalier and wishes to tell me the weather at all times. Let me just turn her off. There we go. In Cheshire, stop. Today. You can expect clouds and We're just going to have to write it out. With a high of 12 degrees high of 12 and a low degrees. of 5 degrees. Low of 5 degrees. That's the Cheshire weather for you. Um, yes, Basso and Macon then, then became the servants um, of the enter the household as a servant. She just couldn't get enough of those cavaliers and the princes. But um, we'll come back to elite education because um, I posted some pictures on Twitter this morning of the headmistresses from the first Female Head Teachers Association. There's a long and illustrious history starting in the middle of the 19th century of hardcore educational establishments and hardcore educators for girls. But what overwhelmingly women are employed in is um, dame schools. So just as those schools for fancy servants start in the 17th century, just as Basso and Macon start saying, hey, maybe posh royalist ladies can, can learn a little bit of Greek and it won't break their brains. So too, we have women suddenly becoming teachers all over the country because we have dame schools. Now, dame schools have become um, notorious since the middle of the 19th century and since people started writing about um, how we needed to introduce formalized education for the working class, one of the things they did was demonize day schools. So I'm gonna make a little bit of a case for day schools, throughout, dame schools throughout this. They're called dame schools um, because, well, here's, 
Here's a summary from one historian of education. Starting in the early 1600s, the Dame and private venture schools provided, quote, a large quantity of poor quality education. Okay. Most of the Dame schools were run by women for infants, as in what we would call early years foundation stage now, up to reception. They taught reading and sometimes a little writing. The private venture schools took pupils up to around the age of seven, but then also up to 10, and they covered the three R's plus sewing and knitting for girls, and perhaps a tiny bit of grammar, geography, and other subjects for older children. Those are, that's a kind of later iteration of the Dame School. The first Dame Schools are very much childcare for a working population, especially when, um, especially during industrialization, they take on rather a critical role when we have urbanization happening. But also, you know, they are providing reading. You'll notice not writing, because teaching children to write becomes very controversial. We don't necessarily want to do that. Um, I've got lots of recollections, recollections of what Dame Schools were like from various people. These are ones from um, some of the Pottery's earliest 19th century Dame Schools. Um, Charles Shaw, who attended Betty W's school until he was seven, tells us, the school was the only room on the ground floor of her little cottage. It was about four yards square with a winding narrow staircase leading to one bedroom above. The furniture was very scant, consisting of a small table, two chairs, and two or three little forms about eight inches high for the children to sit upon. Betty did not teach writing. Again, that had become very contentious in the 18th century, teaching the poor to write. No, no, they can read. We want them to do that. We don't want them writing. But she did teach knitting. So boys like Charles learnt to read and knit, not read and write. Um, Emmanuel Lovekin, who was born in the Potteries in 1820, so again, talking about 19th century version. When quite young, I was sent to an old ladies' school whose name I know they called Tilly Wilson. I must be very young, for I cannot remember anything I learnt but a song. She was a primitive Methodist, and she used to place us on a bench or form and sing, Oh, ye young, ye gee, proud, you must die and wear a shroud. And that's about all I learnt. I was small for my age. Still at about seven and a half years old, I was sent to work in a culpit. 1834 to 135, the Manchester Statistical Society found them in the most deplorable condition. The greater part of them are kept by females, but some by old men whose only qualification for this employment seems to be their unfitness for every other employment. People despise dame schools. And I put it to you that one of the reasons why people despise dame schools is because they were overwhelmingly run by women, especially working class women. But as we can see from the pottery stories, they are teaching they're teaching literacy. We've got the emergence of mass literacy comes with female teachers in what is essentially the early years foundation stage. It's undervalued. It's not seen as professional. And we can see the legacy of that today. Um, early years foundation stage teachers are always pointing out to us in the pay scales for people who work in those settings and in the way they're treated professionally um, and with respect in other conditions, in a in the discourse generally. 1861 Newcastle report. I'm going to kind of start with the end of Dame Schools and then leap back to some people writing about them in the 18th century. Um, the Newcastle report is one of those landmark reports which is part of the march towards the 1870 Elementary Education Act. So it's highly invested in talking about how terrible teachers are in the Dame Schools. So We'll read that and then we'll go look at what some of the people like William Wordsworth or um, Oliver Goldsmith wrote about their own experience of dame schools. Infant schools fall into two well-marked classes, the private or dame schools and the public infant schools, which frequently form a department of the ordinary day schools. Right. 
Dame schools are very common both in the country and in towns. They are frequently little more than nurseries in which the nurse collects the children of many families into her own house instead of attending upon the children of some one family. The general character of these schools is the same in every part of the country. Women are always the teachers. They are generally advanced in life and their school is usually their kitchen, sitting and bedroom and the scene of all their domestic occupations. In remote villages where there are not children enough to support an infant school, or in towns where the distance of such schools from the residence of the parents makes it dangerous for the children to go to them, such establishments are useful, but there can be no doubt that in many cases the continued existence of such schools indicates great deficiency in the supply of a very important branch of popular education. The dame schools are apt to be close, crowded and dirty. The usual scene of these schools, says Mr Winder, is a cottage kitchen in which the mistress divides her time between her pupils and her domestic duties. The children sit around the room, often so thickly stowed as to occupy every available corner, and spend the greater part of their time in knitting and sewing. At intervals, the mistress calls them up one or two at a time and teaches the alphabet and easy words, the highest proficiency attained being the power of reading a little in the New Testament. And then we have an account from Plymouth. The dames most commonly only have one room for every purpose, and their scholars may often be seen sitting around the sides of a four-post bed in low forms, chair things, to stools to sit upon, the sides of the bed forming a back to the seat, sometimes on the sides of the bed. When the children are present, the atmosphere is always oppressive to me, and often, if I stay in it for ten minutes without opening the window, it makes me sick. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, poor Mr Cumin. <laughs> Can't bear to be in the houses of poor women. So, by 1860, there are women teachers everywhere, but they're not really understood as teachers, they're not understood as professionals, and they are despised. So, um, the assessment, as I said, of these dame schools is very much driven by the spirit of educational reform and the move towards professionalisation of state school teaching. Um, as the historian of education, Coverley, says, the dame school appears so frequently in English literature, both in poetry and prose, that it must have played a very important part in the beginnings of elementary education in England. So if we think of it that way, then these women toiling in every single village and town and growing city in the country really are providing the infrastructural and cultural framework that goes into universal early childhood education provision. Um, 1742, William Shenstone's description. Now, I'd like to say that this is a fond description of a dame school teacher, but, well, I'll just let William Shenstone speak for himself. This is a poem uh, Shenstone's written. In every village marked with little spire, embowered in trees and hardly known to fame, there dwells in lowly shed a mean attire, a matron old whom we schoolmistress name, who boasts unruly brats with birch to tame, they grievance sore, in piteous durance pent, awed by the power of this relentless dame, and oft-times on vagaries idly bent, for unkempt hair or task unconned are sorely shent, and all in sight doth rise a birchen tree, which learning in her little dome did stow, will arm a twig of small regard to see, though now so wide its waving branches flow, and work the simple vassal's mickle woe. So, according to Shenstone, every village <laughs> had a terrifying older female teacher who whipped um, the, 
the boys and girls of the parish into shape. Trees outside her cottage solely for that purpose. And let's, let's find out a little bit more about what they were like. The children, their limbs shuddered and their pulse beat low. <laughs> As they looked, they found their horror grew and shaped it into rods and tingled at the view. Even the trees are terrifying children at this point. <laughs> Mike says, warm strict dames in your area. Mike, I feel like we might have crossed into not safe for work. Uh, 18 only education there, but yeah. Um, yeah. So have I seen who has not may conceive a lifeless phantom near a garden place. So doth it wanton birds of peace bereave, of sport, of song, of pleasure, of repast. They start, they stare, they wheel, they look aghast. Shanstein's arguing here that every um, dame school teacher is so prone to whipping children that even the, the birds of the fields won't land on the tree because it's so associated with great and terrible violence enacted across the land by women the first warm straight educators um there she go da, 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 da. from the memoirs of william wordsmith wordsworth um he attended one in penrith in cumbria under a woman called mrs Anne burkett and we'll get to married women later in this because of course as i think we all know in the 20th century we have marriage bans that if you got married you couldn't be a teacher anymore but a lot of these people in the finishing schools, in the early extremely elite schools, or and in these dame schools are married. So at that point, that's that's just fine. Um, and let's go to Wordsworth. His very different sorts of memories here. Uh, the old dame school did not affect to make theologians or logicians, but she taught to read and she practiced the memory, often no doubt by rote, but still the faculty was improved. Something perhaps she explained and left the rest to parents, to masters and to the master of the parish. And here actually it was been really fun researching this bit of it because Wordsworth here and then um, this is the biography of William Wordsworth I'm reading from that, that uses his letters to construct the history of his life, but also adds commentary about the nature of education. And they make the case here that dame schools are actually doing much more of the stuff that we would now call cogsci or learning to learn or metacognition than the later schools are which you know later as in the ones the kids then progress on to uh i'll i'll give you an example this venerable person was mrs ann burkett whose system as tradition reports was very effective in exercising the memory without prematurely taxing the reasoning powers of her young pupils no learning to learn for Miss Anne Burkett. It's all about prior knowledge and memory, which is, of course, as everyone loves to say to each other in education, the residue of thought, a phrase which I find disturbing in the extreme. Residue, a sticky, nasty, something left on the tube. Gross. Um, how does she do this? She, uh, the system stands in strong contrast, says the biographer, with the modern process of instruction, which from a fear of being ridiculed from making children learn by rote, neglects the memory and prematurely enfeebles the reason by overloading it, thus doing a double violence to nature. This, this is some Hirsch stuff right here, guys. This is some, some definite cog-sci enthusiast, edgy lad stuff. The dame schools just taught you stuff. And then these foolish higher things try to teach you to think nonsense says Wordsworth biographer. So there we go. 
Um, I am going to play the news and then we will come back to um, George Crabbe in 1810 telling us about the different types of female teacher. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. <coughs> Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Scotland, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is facing demands to drop her £300,000 scheme to cut the bottom off doors, aimed at improving ventilation to combat COVID-19. Asbestos experts have warned that the plan could expose pupils and teachers to deadly dust. A 2019 report revealed that about 1,600 Scottish schools still have asbestos fixtures and fittings, including fire doors. Asbestos was banned in 1999. Director of Action on Asbestos, Phyllis Craig, said, Asbestos can be found within doors and in different areas in schools, and I would sincerely hope that this is taken into consideration before any work is carried out. Schools are required to have had a survey to identify the presence of any asbestos, 
hold a register of the whereabouts of any asbestos and have a plan to manage asbestos. My question is, does the Scottish Government know if schools meet these requirements before any work is carried out? If not, I'd be concerned asbestos may be disturbed during the process of cutting the doors. Asbestos exposure can have health consequences decades after exposure and this needs to be recognised and treated with the seriousness that it merits. After safety concerns were raised, Education Secretary Shirley-Anne Somerville appeared to back away from plans, but they have not officially been dropped. A Scottish Government spokesman appeared to pass responsibility on to the local authorities, saying, There is no such plan. It is for local authorities to decide what measures they take to improve ventilation in schools. In Northern Ireland, legal action has forced education chiefs into a U-turn and a return to rules which were in place last autumn, which allowed any teacher who qualified in the South to immediately register with the General Teaching Council for Northern Ireland. Kirsty McGrath, who graduated in Dublin last summer, took action after rules were changed and Michelle McElveen, class teachers from the Republic of Ireland, as rest of the world, resulting in a lengthy wait. Miss McGrath, through her solicitors, wrote to the Department of Education, outlining their intention to seek a judicial review and as a result was added to the Northern Ireland Teacher Register last week. Patrick Higgins, solicitor, welcomed the decision, saying... The failure of the Department of Education to process Ms McGrath's application is unlawful and unreasonable. With a teacher shortage in Northern Ireland, this continued delay is impacting pupils, schools and teachers. Although it was named in legal papers, the Department of Education has denied <coughs> it or Minister McElveen has any role on determining who can be a teacher in Northern Ireland. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm addressing a problem quite a few teachers have, the dreaded lock screen in the middle of a lesson. We've all experienced it when you're displaying something and a computer decides you're inactive and goes to sleep. I notice this most if you're using digital link instead of a whiteboard. Well, I may have a way to stop this happening to you. However, it will depend on your school's network settings. You might not be allowed to change the options I'm about to discuss. A quick workaround for this is to see if your display has a freeze button. This will hold whatever's being shown until you unfreeze. Lock screen happens because your computer is trying to save power and also to keep you safe by locking after a specified time of inactivity. If you're going AFK and leaving your computer unattended, press Windows and L. This will lock your machine. Even if this next tip isn't working for you, this will. Never leave your computer unattended and logged in. Windows and L is a good habit to start. 
Now you can lock your machine at will, you're ready to change the settings to keep it on. We need to go to the display settings. A quick way is to right click on the desktop and select it from the menu. Now select power and sleep. As you're probably always plugged in when teaching, set the two drop down menus under the heading screen and sleep to never when plugged in. Now your screen won't switch off and the machine won't go to sleep to save power when you're plugged in. Remember you will need to manually lock the computer if walking away. For this week's visual version, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back. I'm Tabitha McIntosh on The Breakfast Show this morning, and I'm talking today about women teachers. Um, I've started much earlier than most of you probably expect me to. My century is the 18th century. It's the best possible century, especially the 1790s, the best possible decade of the best possible century. Um, and so we've looked at the early 17th century emergence of dame schools. So that's largely working class women using their homes, um, one room in their homes, often in one room cottages, educating not just poor children, but overwhelmingly poor children or lower middle class children in the first stages of their life to learn facts, basic things, Bible information, but overwhelmingly a little bit of reading. Writing, as you, if you were listening earlier, you would have heard, becomes something that is, is very contentious to teach the working class in the 18th century. But they are learning reading. So this is where our mass literacy is coming from, these women working um, without professional qualifications. Obviously, we don't have professional qualifications at the time. Um, they are largely working class women themselves. And they, by 1860 and then 1870, when the Education Act is passed, they are understood as completely unprofessional, um, disgusting in some cases. Though some of the stuff I read earlier showed you that people were revolted by the living conditions and education conditions that they were teaching in, that they found the smell disgusting, they found the women unprofessional. Um, but as I was just reading on Twitter while the news was playing, the, this distinction between um, the overwhelmingly female early years foundation stage teachers who are deemed as unprofessional or somehow just performing something that women automatically know how to do, childcare, child nurturing, the beginnings of literacy, is something that still very much takes place in conversation today. And that's reflected in the absolutely appalling um, pay rates in childcare settings, as well as um, a lot of us follow Michael Merrick. Uh, he's talking, talking yesterday about um, deprofessionalizing teaching essentially by taking away the degree aspect of it. Um, and specifically talking about, I'll just read his tweet here, um, the teaching route for TAs. So TAs, I'd put it to you, are kind of um, performing that dame school function in that they are women without professional credentials, overwhelmingly women that support staff in schools, obviously. Um, he's saying they should be allowed to move into teaching without the degree. What we're looking at here is how women become a professional class of educators um, as an interesting point there, if we would want to deprofessionalize it. Now, when I say deprofessionalize, I'm very much talking about the 19th century construction of professionalization, which is all about credentials and degrees. And when we're talking about women and degrees and credentials in the 19th century, we are, of course, talking about the century when women are finally able to start getting those degrees. And that goes hand in hand with the establishment of highly respected academically driven schools for girls that have highly respected academically driven teachers as well.
But let's go back to Dame schools. So I said just before the ads that we were going to look at George Crabbe's um, 1810 version of what Dame schools were like. We looked at Shenstones, which was just every village had a woman who was a tyrant and a tree from which the terrible um, birches were taken with which to whip the children. George Crabbe begins, to every class we have a school assigned rules for all ranks and food for every mind. So what he does then is go through the ranks of the schools. And women are represented overwhelmingly the teachers of the education for the lowest ranks, which will continue for a very long time. Um, yet there is one that small to rule of study pays and still is deemed a school. That's where a deaf, poor, patient widow sits and awes some 30 infants as she knits. Infants of humble, busy wives who pay some trifling price for freedom through the day. At this good matron's hut, the children meet, who thus becomes the mother of the street. Her room is small, they cannot widely stray. Her threshold high, they cannot run away. Though deaf, she sees the rebel heroes shout. Though lame, her white rod nimbly walks her out. About with lame, um, with band of yarn, she keeps her fenders in. She seems to be tying them in. And to her gown, the sturdiest rogue can pin. Aided by these and spells and telltale birds, her power they dread and reverence her words. So a much more affectionate and yet still rather stern representation there. But again, pointing out that, um, that the entire working movement of, of women, of working class women, who of course have always worked, contrary to the, the way the new woman movement say is representing it in 1890. If only women could work, they say, as various maids and nurses go on and off stage working and being female. Turns out being female only means a certain thing to those kinds of women. Um, they're really enabling the entire labour infrastructure of the country by 1810. They, they're allowing women and men to work. They're allowing wages to rise. As we'll see, when we get to charity schools, the population of the country is massively expanded by 1810. And, um, and these women are performing all of the childcare and early years um, provision in the country, which is one of the reasons why they are understood as not good at all by 1861 with the Newcastle Report, 1870. Um, then there also women are represented, Crabbe says, in learning second seats, where humming students gilded primers read, or books with letters large and pictures gay to make their reading but a kind of play. Reading made easy, so the titles tell, but they who read must first begin to spell. There may be profit in these arts, but still learning is labour. I like that. I think we should all remember that. Learning is labour, call it what you will, upon the youthful mind a heavy load. Nor must we hope to find the royal road. Some will their easy steps to science show, and some to heaven itself their byway know. Trust them not, who fame or bliss would share, must learn by labour and must live with, by care. So early is foundation stage, overwhelmingly female. Then we've got the second stage, which in 1810 is pretty female too, though you have village school masters doing it. But then we also have the preparatory school mistress by this point. Um, talked earlier about the early modern creation of finishing schools for girls, which initially are just teaching music, embroidery, things like that. But then increasingly are also teaching advanced literacy skills. The really advanced ones are teaching, the women are teaching their accountancy and potentially Latin and Greek. Um, 
the this one um people like wordsworth went to these ones so they are doing some preparation for formal schooling uh, and they are teaching formal schooling things and they're working from the huge variety of commercial manuals that are suddenly available for teaching and um, both in uh, all across the anglophone atlantic are the ones i'm most familiar with manuals designed for home instruction manuals designed for school instruction things like the McGuffey readers in the United States, which becomes central to how everyone's taught for the next hundred years. Um, we have changes in the press, which allow that. Um, and we have that happening here. What we also get at the same time as this is happening is the Sunday school movement. Now, when I was an education researcher, I initially began by wanting to look at proto-feminist educational writers like Basha Macon, like Mary Astle, like Margaret Cavendish, like Mary Wollstonecraft, um, you know, famous author of, of Indication of the Rights of Women, who taught herself at a, a small private school, not a dame school, but one of the, the smaller private schools. But who I ended up being obsessed with, much against my better judgment, kicking and screaming, was Hannah Moore. Now, Hannah Moore gets a bit she gets a bit whitewashed at the moment, in that we kind of focus on the fact that she was um, a campaigner for abolitionism and uh, educator of the poor and so which are two very good unquestionably good things she was a member of the clapham sect which were an evangelical christian organization loose organization of individuals who included william wilberforce so obviously with that sort of triumphalist version of the progress of english virtue um she's associated with this but look they were good english people too they helped abolish the slave trade right we'll just ignore all the all the people in Haiti, for example, who did much more to abolish the slave trade by having a revolution. The thing with Hannah Moore is that her educational models and the things she opens up for the Sunday schools, and then as we'll see the cheap repository tracks, are largely in response to things like the Haitian Revolution, to the French Revolution especially, to the American Revolution, to the increasing power of the people to the fear of democratization, to the fear of radicalism. So we have this move that you kind of have in Matthew Arnold a hundred years later, where in, in the 1880s, but then especially in the 1790s and the 1810s, um, Hannah Moore and the other Sunday school movement um, evangelicals begin this idea that we need to educate the poor in order to stop the poor from rebelling in order to stop the poor from democratic movement. So hand in hand, we see it in the anti-Jacobin review and all of this anti-radical stuff. So um, here's uh, Lawson and Silver in 73, describe it as um, the purpose of the schools was simple, to teach the poor, both children and adults, to read the Bible and, in Hannah Moore's words, to train up the lower classes in habits of industry and piety. They didn't teach writing or arithmetic or any of the more dangerous subjects, which were less necessary or even harmful. Uh, Hannah Moore believed writing was an unnecessary accomplishment for the poor, a view which was widely held, especially by the Wesleyans. She taught only from safe books, approved catechism, prayers and tracts. The child was never taught to think critically and was not encouraged to become actively literate. So receptive literacy is what's being taught here. Um, simultaneously, in the United States, um, this is where all the, the laws about um, teaching enslaved people to read becomes illegal in, in an enormous number of states. And then in the 1790s, after the Haitian Revolution, it becomes illegal to allow um, enslaved people to deliver mail, because then they'll be able to communicate with each other. So don't teach them to read, don't teach them to write, 
Don't let them carry printed material or written material around with them because then being able to communicate with each other um, will allow them to conspire against us. So uh, her movement is 1789 at William Wilberforce's instigation. You're sort of pro Hannah Moore things or bring in our big names. Hannah and her younger sister, Martha, found a Sunday school in Cheddar, one of the first nine schools in Somerset. Um, and the kind of good version of that, the, I mean, it is positive. It's inadvertently positive, I would say, about Hannah Moore. Her job is not to empower the working classes, make them literate, allow them to read, you know, a wide variety of things, educate themselves, question, allow, um, you know, labour organisation. It's exactly the opposite of that. And yet by by contributing to the emergence of a literate working class, she's doing the exact opposite of what she intends, which is, again, why I like Hannah more. Because it's like, well, Hannah, you tried to indoctrinate them all, but instead you gave them the tools to unindoctrinate themselves. Um, Hannah Moore and the others, says the kind of pro-Hannah Moore thing, who founded Sunday schools in the later 18th century, saw the schools as a way of giving poor children, or children from immoral homes, what middle-class and wealthy children were obtaining from their home or school life. They did not see the Sunday schools in terms of social control. Yes, they did, by the way. Um, but of religious revival. The schools were neither an educational nor a social charity by intent. Um, the interesting thing with this, and in a lot of the discourse that surrounds what's always called rather euphemistically tough inner city schools, is that tough inner city schools have a special category of child from dysfunctional family who need extreme discipline, um, very traditional education, certain kinds of morality taught into them. Um, those of you who followed my ongoing arguments with the social mobility czar will be very familiar with my, my take on this as well as the social mobility czar take on this, which is very much about school must perform the regulatory functions which poor families do not, is her take on things. And that's very much straight out of Hannibal. Um, she started publishing, see, if you want to teach children to read, and you've got all of these Sunday school teachers across the land, you've got your dame school female teachers across the land, now we've suddenly got Sunday school teachers across the land setting up to educate the local work working class, women everywhere doing this completely unregulated education, um, but women everywhere doing it. So overwhelmingly, we've got this informal teaching workforce, which is female at the beginning of the 19th century. Hannah Moore's amazing trick is to clothe both sides of her market here. So we're teaching children to read, but they need sensible things to read. So what she does, is launched something called the Cheap Repository Tracks, um, a series of chapbooks, so little, almost pamphlets, written in the 18th century. She starts them in the 1790s. They are cheaply produced. They're affordable to many, though um, because her movement is highly, extremely, um, I'm going to say fetishized, that's not the right word, but extremely lauded by the upper classes, you can get some of her cheap repository tracks in a range of prices and different um different printing quality options for your upper classes and you know nice bourgeoisie people to buy the, the finely carved leather with with a uh, lovely inserts in it whereas your working class can buy the very cheap pulp version um by the end of 1800 they've published i think two million copies uh, first year of distribution there's two million copies sold of the cheap repository tracks Let's put that in context. The first census is in 1801 and reveals that the population of Great Britain is 10.5 million. 
So, I mean, I'm quite sure some people bought more than others, but arguably, like her cheap repository tracks were reaching one in five of the population. Because of course, a text is not only read by the owner, it's read out loud as a regulatory function in all of these schools and cottage workplaces and stuff in these Sunday schools. We've got massive reach. So women are teaching and women are sewing up the, um, oh, ironically, women are completely controlling the what's being read market. So we've got all sides being covered there. Hannah Moore as well, by the way, provided educational tracks for all ranges of, of social people. She wrote um, Education of Princess when Princess Charlotte was born. She wrote the cheap repository tracks. She's covering all the bits. Um, an example, there's, there's a lovely British library has um, a copy of one of her tracks called uh, Black Giles the Poacher. And so I'm just going to tell you the plot of Black Giles the Poacher. So you know the kind of thing being um, circulated in these Sunday schools where, again, they weren't taught to write but they were taught to read. So again, women across the country, it's a huge movement 20 years after she started it. It's the kind of thing, you know, if you're an aspiring middle-class person who believes that, you know, everyone has a role in improving the country of Great Britain, which is how everyone's talking in 1800, then you've gone and set up a Sunday school, right? You've gone to educate the working classes, the dame schools, those women are now deemed to be, they're, they're still going, they're still providing the majority of daycare and early years care and childcare. But at the same time, they're not moral enough because they're just village women. They're not solid middle-class women doing it. So Black Giles the poacher. We're introduced to the lazy family of Black Giles, a poacher and his wife, Tawny Rachel. Highly racialized language there. The author paints a damning picture of this family for whom Regular labour and honest industry did not suit their idle habits. Instead of being redeemed by society or by personal revelation, the family members appear destined to receive their just deserts. Giles dies in agony from injuries sustained during an attempted robbery, while Tawny Rachel is transported to Australia for handling stolen goods. The author does not describe the fate of the children. Teach them to read. Give them this to read. Don't teach them to write. Um, as uh, the one historian is saying here, while the Sunday schools of the late 18th century did not cater exclusively for members of the working classes, in the 19th century, the movement exclusively belonged to working class culture, hugely popular in large industrial cities, especially in the Midlands and the North. Manchester's interdenominational Sunday schools had 1,800 pupils in 1784, and by 1788, that number had trebled, also strong in rural communities, under largely working class teachers, they were studying reading, spelling and religion between four and six hours every Sunday by the time we get into the 19th century. Um, have very limited aims, but they were regarded as subversives. Like, like I said, the bind here is that even though these are fundamentally conservative in outlook, designed to regulate families and regulate the industrial classes and regulate the, um, the poor in general, at the same time, they are teaching people to read which teaches them to communicate. And even if you are providing propaganda in the form of the cheap repository tracks, you can't actually control what they read after that. 1841, an inspector is describing Norfolk Sunday schools as until recently the chief instrument of instruction and in many parishes still such. Now I'm gonna ignore the ragged schools, which a lot of people have heard of and written about, because the ragged schools overwhelmingly have male teachers. There were some female teachers, but they, um, they're kind of lost in the records and they tend to be the spouses of male teachers and they are underplayed at the time. Dickens writes about the ragged schools in the 
the masters, the male masters of these schools are overwhelmingly valorized. Um, but keep in mind when you hear about ragged schools that actually the vast majority of education in the country is being provided in Sunday schools and by dame schools. So overwhelmingly female teachers teaching all of the children of Great Britain the education that they are deemed possible for them to get in the 19th century and throughout the 18th century. The other kind of school that we kind of picked up on and now we're going back to is the private public girls boarding schools and women could teach there and women could set up amazing businesses for themselves as we'll see. Um, Crab when he gets to the boarding schools says turn we to schools which more than these afford the sound instruction and the wholesome board and first our school for ladies pity calls for one soft sigh when we behold these walls placed near the town from where with windows high the fair confined may our free crowds espy with many a stranger gazing up and down and all the envied tumult of the town um like peeps back in the 17th century going to have a, a touristy glance around women's seminaries or or you know princess anne doing the same thing um there's a lot of interest in these schools for young ladies. Jane Austen's novels are full of them. Obviously, none of the, the more solidly middle-class characters, main characters in her novels go to them. But, say, um, Harriet in uh, Emma goes to a, a private ladies' boarding school. They are set up by, <clears throat> by women, exclusively by women, and then they offer the same kinds of things they were offering in the 17th century. Um, going to go back to Anthony Fletcher, who I was reading from earlier, because he's got some lovely examples of what these women were teaching. The core curriculum at Mrs. Courtney's boarding school for young ladies in 1785 was English, French, music, dancing, writing and accounts. Mrs. West's new school in Cross Street in 1780 paid special attention to the health, morals and deportment of young ladies. Morals and how you're holding your head, equally important, fellas, if you want to get a good wife. Um, and in addition to all the usual subjects, offered embroidery, tambour, and different ornaments of fine needlework. Mrs. Briscoe in Queen Street offered Latin or English in 1775. Well done, Mrs. Mrs. Briscoe. Mrs. Tapley, meanwhile, was providing paints, silks, and muslins for pupils ready to pay for instruction in embroidery. Um, if you go to any 18th or early 19th century newspaper, the first page of it, the front page, serves a very different function at that point. And it's not full of you know, headlines. What it's full of is, is situations wanted, situations vacant, advertisements for schools, advertisements for things. And overwhelmingly, there are these adverts for schools for boys and girls run by private individuals. Um, just <laughs> on the idea of how much fun you could have with your private school, how you could use your private school to live a life of international intrigue there's this wonderful woman called uh, Miss Shepherd, who, uh, you know, we've been at war with France since the, the mid 1790s, but then we have the Peace of Amiens in 1802. So Britain and France declare a peace that lasts for a year, and suddenly British people can go to France again, and France, French people can come to Britain. And, and Miss Shepherd, who runs a school in London, goes to France, and she's like, wow, I really like it here, and it seems really cheap. So what she does is, uh, this is um, one of her pupils, Elizabeth Lachlan, recounting it. Uh, Miss Shepherd made known her plans, drew up her advertisements, applied to her friends, solicited the parents of her scholars, and in two months had the promise of between 30 and 40 girls of respectable families 
and of 10 or 12 ladies as parlour boarders to go to France. So she buggered off to France with all the pupils from her London school because it was cheaper and more exciting. And there, of course, she could get them even more fluent in French. The tragic flaw in her plan was that peace failed a year later and she had to come back. Um, lovely uh, Jane Austen, lovely moment from one, one of Jane Austen's unfinished works, The Watsons, where two of the characters are arguing about um, what you should do to survive as a middle-class woman. Like, what, what are your options in life? And one of them is like, you just have to marry someone. As, as uh, one of her other characters says in Pride and Prejudice, marriage is woman's pleasantest preservative from one. And this character bursts out, I would rather be a teacher in a school and I can think of nothing worse than marry a man I did not like. And, and to which the other character replies, I have been at school, Emma, and I know what a life they lead. You never have. So, you know, if you were Miss, uh, Miss Shepherd running off to France, was she Miss Shepherd? Yes, indeed she was. If you were Miss Shepherd running off to France, you could certainly have a lovely life. But everybody was aware that teaching the, these lump and uninterested girls to do sewing and walk around with, with books on their head and play the tambourine and whatever else was fashionable in the marriage market that year for the bourgeoisie was not a pleasant life. I'd rather marry a man I did not like, says the character. We fast forward with this, this version of schooling, which is, you know, it is not academic. We did have that one teacher, female teacher's school offering Latin, but largely we're offering marriageable, marketable, middle-class performance. That's what female teachers are teaching. They're either doing childcare, regulating the poor, or marketable marriage material. But 1850, um, North London Collegiate is founded. And the headmistress of that, Miss Frances Mary Bus, founds the Association of Head Teachers of Endowed and Proprietary Schools in 1874. And that goes hand in hand with um, the potential entrance of women to Oxford and Cambridge. Um, in 1896, there were 166 ordinary women members, and, um, and then it became the Association of Headmistresses in 1896. Um, it, didn't, it disappeared in 1978 to become the Secondary Heads Association. From the beginning, this is associated entirely with, with high standards of academic rigor, but also high standards of social control. Um, here, uh, Miss Cobb, who's educated there, gives a very telling summary of the education of the earlier part of the 19th century in an account of the, the boarding school in which her own education had been finished at a cost for two years of a thousand pounds. She says, nobody dreamed that any one of us could in later life be more or less than an ornament to society. That a pupil in that school should become an artist or authoress would have been regarded as a deplorable dereliction. Not that which was good or useful to the community, or even that which would be delightful to ourselves, but that which would make us admired in society. The education of women was probably at its lowest ebb about half a century ago. It was at that period more pretentious than it ever had been before, and infinitely more costly, and it was likewise more shallow and senseless than can be easily believed. So, by mid-century, we have these emerging women educators who take education seriously and want to be taken seriously themselves, and that goes hand in hand with professionalism. Uh, Frances Mary Buss's description of her own time in school is fascinating. Like, <laughs> we got some fantastic parental complaints in here. The foundation of the North London Collegiate Schools for Ladies 
was not merely the commencement of one special school, but it was an era in education. If we very old pupils can carry our minds back to the time when Guide to Knowledge and Mangle's Questions, oh, Mangle's Questions are published so much. Like I said, there's a huge market for these standardized education pamphlets and, and things. Um, were the chief standard school books for most of the scientific and historical instruction that girls received. When the mildest form of gymnastics, such as jumping over a stick held a few inches above the ground, was deemed so unladylike that some girls were withdrawn from the earliest classes formed. When the study of the most rudimentary physiology horrified the Mrs. Grundys of the period, who would not permit their daughters to continue the course after the first lesson, like the mother of later times at the primary school who wrote to the teacher, Mrs. S asked that my Mary Jane do not go again to these lessons where they talk about their bodies. First, which is this nasty, and second, which it is rude. The time when we learnt pages of dictionary with meanings in the first class and rules of dry as dust grammar without any meaning to us for years afterwards. The time when it was asserted and believed that a girl's mind was incapable of grasping any mathematical knowledge beyond the first four rules of arithmetic. We can, remembering those good old times, see what a wonderful stride was taken in girls' education by the North London Collegiate School. But as from the early modern emergence of, of schools for anyone but the elite, we do have two streams, classic Britain, um, one for children of the elite, girls of the elite, formal education, professional education, people thinking about education, about the nature of pedagogy, teaching, going into universities and professions. But then we also have education for working class girls. Female teachers on both sides of those things. The dame schools are all about to disappear. The Sunday schools have largely gone by this point. And 1870, the Education Act brings in universal elementary school education, um, which is, from its very beginning, structurally disadvantages female teachers. Um, the wages for female workers vary tremendously because obviously they're set by local authorities. But in practically all professions, women earned less than men. In 1883, the School Board of London specified that the salaries of female teachers should be three quarters of those for male teachers of equal qualifications and experience. In 1890, male assistant teachers had an average annual salary of £117, while women earned £88 for the same work. Um, essentially, Victorian notion of gender. I don't need to explain to you the history of thinking that women are inferior to men, but built into all of the local authority school schemes was the idea that women should be paid less than men. But women are teachers. Um, you get a lot of circulation on social media of these alleged rules for female teachers, allegedly written in the 1870s. Do have a look at those instead of just retweeting them or resharing them on Facebook, because almost always they're very much made up or um, or they come from a Canadian school board once somewhere. Um, women were teachers. The marriage bar, they could be teachers after they got married. That carried on for a while. That doesn't come in. And we're about to talk about that. Um, that starts after the First World War. We have educational cuts leading to the reduction of wages for all teachers, the wages of female teachers being hit the hardest. And then we have the introduction of the marriage bar. Um, Liala Padmanabhan in uh, 2000 in the TES got to interview some women who've been affected by the marriage bar. The marriage bar, um, basically, if you were married and female, you had to resign immediately from your position or um, you had to resign immediately from teaching upon getting married. 
So again, that doesn't apply in um, 1870, but it very much starts to come in after the First World War, but as we'll see, some places do it much, much earlier. And that has a legacy that lasts for a very long time, as we all know. Uh, when I went to grammar school in Buckinghamshire in, um, in the 1980s, 1980s, I still very much had a generation of female teachers who were all miss. You know, they, they wore twin set and pearls, they had their hair frozen in Margaret Thatcher style shells, and they were all Miss, Miss Watson, Miss Shepherd, Miss this, Miss that, which I didn't understand at the time, um, but now I understand is actually the structural product of them wanting to be ambitious professionals. And um, so these four school mistresses who talked to the TAS in 2000, um, let me just find some of them talking about it. Uh, this is Miss Stacy, who was 83 in the year 2000. Um, she was engaged and faced having to resign. By the time the law was repealed, her fiance had been killed in the Second World War and she decided to devote her life to teaching. She retired 20 years ago after spending most of her career teaching maths and PE in a challenging mix, secondary modern in Coventry. It took many years for men to tolerate us women, she said. Men could be very condescending. They would scorn older women and say, poor old dear, she's not married. We suffered from the Miss Jean Brodie image of the spinster's teacher. Someone recently was rude about me on Twitter by referring to me as a Miss Jean Brodie type. Let's ignore all of the um, deep safeguarding concerns and pro-fascist sympathies of Miss Jean Brodie and just think about how fabulous she is. But also the inherent hundred-year-old misogyny of that statement. Um, as Miss Stacy, aged 83 in 2000, is saying, that image of the spinster teacher, the kind of teachers who ran my grammar school in the 80s, who ran all female-only grammar schools in the 80s, they were these unconquerable, martinet, sailing Edwardian ship women with large bosoms hidden underneath twin sets, absolutely implacable controllers of classrooms and schools because they couldn't get married. They weren't allowed to get married, even had they wanted to. I'm not assuming they all did. Marriage is not, you know, woman's pleasant as preservative from what. Uh, Molly Radcliffe talking about, um, she started at the North London Collegiate School for Ladies. She went there. Um, if I hadn't gone there, I'd never have had the chance of a profession, she said. It wasn't easy to be a woman in a man's world, but at least I had some independence. So hardly any women working professionally, teaching as it was for poor women, as it was for elite women, was an acceptable occupation for women. We could have proper career, proper advancement, but you would not be paid the same as men. And also you were forced to be single for many, many years. It gets repealed in 1944, but for yeah, the generation of older women, when I entered school, it was too late by that point. They are, you know, she also said, um, I quite like this, she stresses that classes over 50 and wartime lessons in air raid shelters were outweighed by the rewards of teaching. These days, teachers seem to have all sorts of different stresses, she says. My advice to them is to keep a sense of humour. I imagine you would need a sense of humour um, if you were teaching in an air raid shelter, 50 people at a time. Uh, There's a 1930 bill in Hansard I was looking at earlier that um, was one of many unsuccessful attempts to repeal the marriage bar. but. Um, we'll see some real continuation of structural representation of the role of women teachers in here. So they're, they're saying we should allow teachers to carry on teaching after they're married, but some of their reasons are like, thanks mate, I'm not, I could have done without this. 
This is a short bill, the author says, the single purpose of which is that in future, a woman teacher shall not be refused employment or dismissed merely on the grounds that she's married or about to be married. It may be some news to some members of the house that, almost as if not quite entirely since the war, the practice has grown up among local authorities of employing women who undertake to resign on marriage. We have had considerable experience of women as teachers, and anybody who has any knowledge of the school knows the immense advantage of having a certain number of married women on staff. That's right, kids. It's not that um, it's just inequitable to fire women because they got married. It's not that there's entrenched gender inequality in that. It's that there's active benefits to having married ladies teaching at your school. What might those benefits be? Well, they're all to the well-being of the child. So, for example, parents, to my knowledge, appreciate the fact that the care, training and education of their children at school is partly in the hands of married women. I am convinced that the education service would be the poorer if no married women were serving on the staff. Why would that be? Let's see. The Board of the Education has recognised that it's important to have a certain number of married women amongst the teachers because of the great advantage of infant care being taught, preferably by married women. If the practice of not engaging married women and of requiring them to resign is persisted in, <clears throat> the opportunity of having their services will no longer exist. On top of that, we have the proposals of the Haddo report, the basis of which is broadening the syllabus of the schools, which include, in the girls' departments, teaching cookery and housewifery. We need married women teachers because we need ladies who've put on nappies to teach the girls to put on nappies, which, you know, I guess I'll take that if it's the only way I can stay in teaching when I get married, but it is the most patronising <laughs> way of positioning it possible. Cooking in housewifery and changing nappies, that's why we need married women. 35, the London County Council removes the marriage bar for teachers. 44, it's listed nationally. Um, also in the civil service and in the BBC, you had to resign if you got married until 1944. In some areas, in some union offices, the marriage bar survived into the 1960s. Uh, it's a great um, leaflet from the National Union of Women Teachers, which comes into existence not about the marriage bar per se, but about the gender pay gap, the structural difference in pay, and then basically dissolves when... Um, when gender pay is, is ruled, when difference in pay is, is written out of the teachers' scales, as we'll see later in the century. But um, they're very pleased about the removal of the marriage bar. I'll put that picture up later on Twitter. Um, and then we have, simultaneous with that, the campaign for equal pay. That starts in 1904, so very early on, as soon as we have this written into law, the idea that women should be pay less, then obviously um, the National Union of Women Teachers starts emerging in order to fight against that and it doesn't it doesn't manage that oh, I think 60 we'll see it's in the 60s that um that structural pay differentials between men and women get get made illegal uh they first form actually in 1896 but then they split hopelessly so it's a bit like that scene in the life of um brian with the everyone is splitters there's a national association uh, a ladies committee of the national association of teachers and then there is, uh, I think I actually stopped writing them down because I got confused, National Federation of Women Teachers. And the thing they do is they, they fault line around. The next thing we're going to talk about is suffragette teachers. So we want a campaign for equal pay. We want to get rid of the marriage bar. 
we want the vote. Oh, wait, we don't want the vote. That's too much. Or we do want the vote. So we have to keep founding new organisations that encompass all of our things. But those are our three areas that women teachers are hopelessly involved in. I say hopelessly because, I mean, hopelessly stuck in the web of that. So on the one hand, we've got the National Association of you know, Headmistresses, these elite schools that are increasingly getting girls into the women's colleges, the new women's colleges of Oxford and Cambridge. Um, on the other hand, we have this shift towards um, teaching domestic science, but also the increase in time spent in school for boys and girls. So that's been increased to the age of 14. And we have overwhelmingly female teachers professionalized teaching those things, but we are still firing women when they're married or they never get married so they won't be fired and they're not paid, they're paid what, four fifths of men. But then they also take on the demand for women's vote. There's a lovely article from 1909 um, from The Guardian, 16th of November. Teachers suffragettes uncontrollable. I like that. I like an uncontrollable suffragette teacher. Miss Kate Riley said that a certain great many of people in the suffragette movement were teachers who certainly had not learned to control themselves. She wanted to know if the committees have power to advise or in any way control this class of person and whether the committee were to have their schools to any extent staffed by such people because there was no doubt that a very large number of them were trained by the committee and had now taken this line of life, which to many of us is not only offensive, but positively shocking from the moral point of view. Sir Henry Hibbert replies, I'm afraid we cannot control them. They seem to be a class who are not easily controlled, at which there is laughter. Of course, we can advise them, at which there is more laughter. I love that uncontrollable teacher suffragettes and then there's one story i came across if you if you're familiar with the activities of suffragettes and you see that a school teacher you're searching you're searching the archives newspaper archives and you find teachers charged with setting things on fire and it's 1909 1910 you're like eh, found found one of those uncontrollable suffragettes shout out to gertrude francis 26 a school teacher who was charged with setting fire to hayricks in englishcombe near bath on friday night Prisoner had refused to take any food since her arrest on Saturday. Evidence was given by a farmer's wife that Prisoner and another woman called at the farm at English come on Friday night to ask the way. Her husband followed them, being suspicious, and asked them for their names. Um, and they were just setting fire to stuff across the countryside. That's what these uncontrollable suffragette teachers were doing. When is Nadine Zahawi going to step in and control this partisan teaching? Right? Okay. Uh, I've got a lovely picture as well, which I've, I've put up from the other thing of women teachers signing the petition um, in the 50s for equal pay. Um, it shows the vice president of the National Union of Women Teachers watching young women teachers sign an equal pay petition in Birmingham. And uh, she's saying, show fight like the suffragettes. Maybe not quite like the suffragettes. <laughs> Maybe not set fire to hayricks. All right, yeah. Uh, yeah, so Burnham Salary Scales in the 1920s help some female teachers but at the same time their wages are 80 percent of men's wages it is not until 1961 10 years before i was born that it's agreed that equal pay should gradually be introduced so i hated in that 80s punk kid everything's wrong all grown-ups and monsters way the um the implacable women who ran the grammar schools of buckinghamshire in the 1980s but doing research for this thinking about what they lived and worked through 
I have a much more admiration for them than, than my 15-year-old self would ever have thought at the time. I mean, in their own way, they were revolutionaries. Although I would have loved it much more if Miss Watson, who failed to teach me maths, um, but who definitely succeeded in wearing a twin set and horn-rimmed glasses, had set fire to some hayricks. If I'd known about that potential in her background, I might have enjoyed introduction to calculus a bit more. Um, 1975, the Sex Discrimination Act prohibits discrimination in promotion of teachers, allowing female teachers to progress in their careers more easily. So at that point, that should be the end of our story. We all lived happily ever after. Men and women get the same pay. Women don't have to leave teaching when they get married anymore. Um, we all live happily ever after, right? Well, not quite. So I'll come back to that after we have had a second go on the news from Gail Glenn and a message from our sponsors. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb digital portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Scotland, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon 
is facing demands to drop her £300,000 scheme to cut the bottom off doors, aimed at improving ventilation to combat COVID-19. Asbestos experts have warned that the plan could expose pupils and teachers to deadly dust. A 2019 report revealed that about 1,600 Scottish schools still have asbestos fixtures and fittings, including fire doors. Asbestos was banned in 1999. Director of Action on Asbestos, Phyllis Craig, said, Asbestos can be found within doors and in different areas in schools, and I would sincerely hope that this is taken into consideration before any work is carried out. Schools are required to have had a survey to identify the presence of any asbestos, hold a register of the whereabouts of any asbestos and have a plan to manage asbestos. My question is, does the Scottish Government know if schools meet these requirements before any work is carried out? If not, I'd be concerned asbestos may be disturbed during the process of cutting the doors. Asbestos exposure can have health consequences decades after exposure and this needs to be recognised and treated with the seriousness that it merits. After safety concerns were raised, Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville appeared to back away from plans, but they have not officially been dropped. A Scottish Government spokesman appeared to pass <coughs> responsibility on to the local authorities, saying, There is no such plan. It is for local authorities to decide what measures they take to improve ventilation in schools. In Northern Ireland, legal action has forced education chiefs into a U-turn and a return to rules which were in place last autumn which allowed any teacher who qualified in the South to immediately register with the General Teaching Council for Northern Ireland. Kirsty McGrath, who graduated in Dublin last summer, took action after rules were changed, and Michelle McElveen, class teachers from the Republic of Ireland as rest of the world, resulting in a lengthy wait. Miss McGrath, through her solicitors, wrote to the Department of Education, outlining their intention to seek a judicial review and as a result was added to the Northern Ireland Teacher Register last week. Patrick Higgins, solicitor, welcomed the decision, saying, The failure of the Department of Education to process Ms McGrath's application is unlawful and unreasonable. With a teacher shortage in Northern Ireland, this continued delay is impacting pupils, schools and teachers. Although it was named in legal papers, the Department of Education has denied it or Minister McElveen has any role on determining who can be a teacher in Northern Ireland. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm addressing a problem quite a few teachers have, the dreaded lock screen in the middle of a lesson. We've all experienced it when you're displaying something and the computer decides you're inactive and goes to sleep. I notice this most if you're using digital ink instead of a whiteboard. Well, I may have a way to stop this happening to you. However, it will depend on your school's network settings. You might not be allowed to change the options I'm about to discuss. A quick workaround for this is to see if your display has a freeze button. This will hold whatever's being shown until you unfreeze. Lock screen happens because your computer is trying to save power and also to keep you safe by locking after a specified time of inactivity. If you're going AFK and leaving your computer unattended, press Windows and L. This will lock your machine. Even if this next tip isn't working for you, this will. Never leave your computer unattended and logged in. Windows and L is a good habit to start. Now you can lock your machine at will, you're ready to change the settings to keep it on. We need to go to the display settings. A quick way is to right click on the desktop and select it from the menu. Now select power and sleep. As you're probably always plugged in when teaching, set the two drop down menus under the heading screen and sleep to never when plugged in. Now your screen won't switch off and the machine won't go to sleep to save power when you're plugged in. Remember you will need to manually lock the computer if walking away. For this week's visual version, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. We're in the last five minutes of The Breakfast Show with Tabitha McIntosh. That's me. I'm just, maybe we'll talk about myself in the third person from now on. Why not? Um, I've just taken you through a rambling circuitous informed by things I'm fascinated by, uh, history of female teachers from about 1600 up until 1975. So 1975, the Sex Discrimination Act prohibits discrimination in the promotion of teachers, which theoretically allows female teachers to progress in their careers more easily. And in 1961, um, before that, they've agreed that equal pay should be gradually